passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by one of the best pitchers of all time. He's a 10-time All-Star, two-time Cy Young Award winner, and was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2014. Also a teammate, former teammate of mine, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Glavin. Tommy, thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure, Booney. How's everything? Everything's good. Uh, I'm going to go back to... Off season of 98, I get phone call. I got traded to the Braves. And I remember thinking, first thing I was thinking was, I don't have to face Glav, Maddox, and Smoltz <laughs> for at least a year. And it ended up being yeah. one year. Uh, you know, I remember I was living in Florida at the time. Hershiser was a was a neighbor of mine, and he said, Hey Booney, congratulations. You know, you got a chance to go to a World Series. Because back in those days, the nineties and you had a lot of guys, you had that core group, but you had a guys coming in year in and year out. You had a bunch of different teammates and it was kind of the thing when you got traded there. Oh, you're probably going to get a chance to go to the world series, at least the playoffs at worst. I remember that, but then I got to spring training that year and not only was it, was everything I thought it was going to be, but when Bobby introduced the new players and was myself and it was Brian Jordan, he kind of said, guys, we here in Atlanta, the culture is I put the lineup up, we go out and we we steamroll our opponent our opponent. Yeah. 
And I think that year in 99, we did as well. We won 103, 104 games. I forget what it was. Ended up getting to the World Series. Um, we ended up losing to the Yankees that year. But it was that expect to win culture that, you know, I've been on some great teams in Cincinnati. We had some real good runs. Uh, Seattle in the early 2000s, I was a part of some great teams. But that Atlanta year that I was there, it was a little bit different. It was expected. Uh, take me through that a little bit. Guy that's that was there for 16 years. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, obviously we uh, burst onto the scene and to the scene, I'm sorry, in uh, 1991. And, um, you know, while, while I think most of us that were there at the time thought, you know, we had a chance to have a pretty good team. Um, certainly be a competitive team in 91. Uh, I, don't, I don't think any of us thought we were going to win our division. I, you know, we were so bad uh, the years before that. I think that we would have been perfectly satisfied with getting to 500 or a little over 500 and being somewhere in the middle of the division in terms of uh, standings. And everything clicked. Um, and it clicked probably two years faster than I think most of us thought it was going to. Uh, and I remember coming back the next year in dealing with what you just talked about, the expectations, uh, because it was one thing to win your division one year, kind of sneak up on everybody. You're kind of the darlings of baseball. And, and let's face it, you know, you, you look at baseball and there's a surprise team every year. Uh, we happen to be the team in 1991, but I remember going to spring training in 92 and all of a sudden there are expectations. Um, it was different. And I think after we did it again in 92, then it kind of became that mentality that you spoke of when you got there in 99. We, we showed up in spring training every year and, and we expected to win. And, and that's just the way that it was. Now, um, I don't think we took those expectations lightly because, you know, as you know, I don't care how good your team is, you're one or two injuries away from everything changing. And, and I think we were aware of that. Um, but we went into every year uh, expecting to win and knowing that um, it was – you know, it was what we were supposed to do. So uh, that culture grew pretty significantly, significantly by the time you got there. But um, it was a culture that we embraced. It was a culture that we quite honestly believed in. We just felt like um, after 162 games, we were going to be the one that was standing and we were going to be the team that was in first place. And just nobody was going to be able to knock us off. And for a long time, they didn't. You know, we had Snitker, the current manager for the Braves, on recently, and he talked about that. He grew up in that organization. He's been in that organization in one capacity or another for a lot of years now. It was really cool talking to him because he's come full circle. He's like, Booney, mm -hmm. I was here. I was in the big leagues. I was back in the minor leagues. And and when this recent opportunity for him to to manage the ball club came up, he said – it caught him completely off guard. He was beyond that in his mind that, you know, his, his time had come and passed and, and lo and behold, it comes back and ends up winning a world series. It seems like that culture's kind of been recreated recently in Atlanta. You're now in the booth with, with the Braves. Uh, do you see that to, to a, to somewhat of a degree of those nineties teams? I do. Um, you know, look, I think um, the, the, the great thing for Snit is, like you said, he he was in the organization for so long. I mean, heck, I played for Snit my first year in pro ball and instructionally back in 1984. So uh, you're right. He's served virtually every role you could ask somebody to serve within an organization. So it was great to see him get that shot. Um, but he, you know, he spent a lot of time with Bobby, um, you know, whether it was 
as a, a, a coach on Bobby's staffs in the big leagues or around Bobby in spring training. Um, so I think a lot of the the culture that Bobby Bobby brought is is the same culture that Snit grew up under, so to speak. And and I think Snit brings the same thing. Um, you know, going down there, doing games, and sitting and talking with Snit. Um, I see a lot of the same similarities in Snit that I saw in Bobby. I hear a lot of the same things uh, from the players about Snit that we all used to say about Bobby. Um, and I think that culture has has returned. I mean, I think that I don't know what the number is now, but they've won five or six titles or division titles in a row again. So, um, you know, they have built that expectation again. And, and you know, you look at that team now uh, coming into this year, I think they're the odds on favorite to win their division again. And certainly a team that uh, a lot of teams look at or a lot of people look at uh, as a team uh, that they would pick to win the World Series. So, um, you know, I think Snit's done a great job. Uh, of coming in there and taking over kind of during the rebuild and now uh, having those pieces to the puzzle, leading them to where they, uh, you know, where they need to go and, and, you know, being a perennial contender every year. Uh, for those of you listening to the Boom Podcast, I'm going to, uh, Tommy, it's interesting to me if you remember this, but I'm, uh, I'm going to give them a little insight to that culture in the nineties. And when I came over, so uh, we're sitting, we play the season. Uh, we have a great season. We're going to the playoffs and, and what, teams do is at the end of the year if we're in the playoffs we have a playoff shares meeting and i think you were running the meeting mm -hmm. and i'm sitting there with a couple of my new teammates that haven't been in atlanta a long time and we're going over you know all right how much are we voting for this and voting for that and uh it seems like we were real lenient with the shares and i'm sitting there and i think i raised my hand i said glab i said what are we going to do give the peanut lady a share and, and i think you kind of told me hey booty this culture in Atlanta, we win every year. So, so we're pretty lenient with our shares. And I, I remember, la you know, it was all in a light moment. I remember laughing, thinking, well, I haven't been in the playoffs every year. This yeah, is my yeah. second time. And you kind of laughed at me like, yeah, Booty, this is what we do in Atlanta. I thought that was cool. But also, I thought it was just kind of a, you know, some reality of what it had been like for you guys. And it wasn't coming from an arrogant breath. It was kind of, no, this is what we expect to do. And this is pretty much what we've done for the last 10 years. I thought, it, I thought it was a pretty cool moment. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, I, I think based on what you say and what I've heard other players say, I think we were on the uh, probably on the more generous side of, uh, of awarding shares or portions of shares or, or what the case may be. But in that, that part of it, certainly was the fact that we were going to the playoffs a lot. So, um, you know, it, I, again, like you said, it wasn't like we took it for granted. It wasn't anything like that. It was just that, you know, we knew um, being able to send somebody, you know, a portion of a share, that kind of money that a lot of those people would get was, was a big deal. So, you know, I think we tried to be mindful of everybody who played a role uh, from players to grounds crew people to people in the, uh, you know, organization that helped us with travel, whatever the case may be, because as you know, there are a lot of people that do a lot of things behind the scenes during the course of the year to make a season go smoothly. So I think we always erred on the side of uh, trying to be a little bit more generous. Um, and, you know, look, I know, again, maybe maybe we would have uh, took home a little bit more here and there, but I, I know that for a lot of those people that ended up getting some of that money uh, over the years, there were a lot of them that reached out and, and you know, couldn't say enough about how appreciative they were that we even thought of them, let alone, let alone getting some money. 
this might be old hat for you. I know it is, uh, but it's just probably a story of your life. You're going to be linked to, to Smoltzy and Doggy uh, for the rest of your life. And, and from a, a former teammate of yours, a, fo- a former opponent of yours, uh, I think it's a good thing. You know, a lot of us get asked of off offensive players, you know, they'll come to me at this state. I'm sure they come to you. Hey, Glav, who were some of the toughest guys for you to get out? Come to mm-hmm. me. Who are some of the best pitchers you ever faced, Booney? And and I've narrowed it down. It's an easy answer. You know, they'll go over Pedro and Roger. And yeah, there were a lot of guys, believe me, out there that, that I had a tough time with. But I've narrowed it down. And it's pretty easy for me to say now. I said in the 90s, you know, I, the majority of my time in the 90s was with the Reds. I said, Maddox Molesalavin. I said, this is back when we had USA Today. We didn't have our phones. And believe me, I, I don't think I was alone, but we'd be have that Atlanta trip coming up. And I'm like, and no disrespect to Merker or <laughs> any of the guys that came and gone. <laughs> but I'd sit there and I'd open I'd open that paper up and I have one eye closed. I'm like, who am I getting? You know, and I'd count the days. Like, we're going to be there in 12 days. Who do I get? And it seemed like nine times out of 10, it was. Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. I'm like, no, I've got to, I got to find a way. I mean, it, it was so, you guys were so good at that time. My, the best staff I saw definitely in my playing days uh, and maybe, and, and one of the best of all time. The thing that was so unique about you guys, you were so different. Doggy was going to go, when in doubt, he was going to, and sorry for you guys listening. When I, I reference Doggy, that's, that's Greg Maddox. That's his nickname. Uh, he was going to go sinker away. He was going to start the ball off the plate, bring it back for a strike, when in doubt. And if that worked for him, he wouldn't go away from that. You were going to be a little different. You're going to throw away. You're going to test the edges of that strike zone. If you got somebody to fish, you were going to throw him a strike. And I know that was kind of your M.O. in Atlanta with Leo Mazzoni. Uh, I remember sitting there talking to Leo during the year I played with the Braves. I'd say, Leo, are you that great of a pitching coach? You know what his answer was. I don't know if you've heard this before. He goes, if you had Maddox, Smoltz, and Glavin, you'd be a genius pitching coach too, Boone. And I laughed at that, but you were also different. Smoltz, he was kind of the traditional over-the-top heater, power slider. And But I remember that one year and playing against you. If your opponent would swing at a ball, why throw him a strike? Was that a big mm-hmm. part of your repertoire and your thought process? I know you especially. Uh, and I used to think this later in my career. I'm like, all right, if Glav gets me in a situation where there's runs to, you know, he gets into a little trouble, bases loaded, second and third, he'll walk me before he's going to give up a double. He's not going to throw a, you'll walk somebody with the base loaded before you're going to give up a three run double. Uh, give me a little, little behind the scenes of that. Yeah. Look, I mean, I laugh because, you know, like even now when I do games broadcasting and, and, you know, I'll, whoever I'm working with will say, well, if base is loaded. He's got to throw a strike. And no, you know, don't. I'll, kind of, I'll sarcastically say, no, you don't. I'd rather walk on the give up a grand slam. So, you know, um, that was, that was my mentality. That was the way I had to pitch. I mean, I didn't, you know, I was not a stuff guy. Um, I mean, I was a stuff guy in the sense that obviously I had a, I had an above average changeup that I leaned on a lot and it was because of location and movement uh, that I was able to lean on it, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a guy that was going to rear back and here you go, here comes a fastball. Uh, I'm going to take my chances. So, you know, that it was just something that I guess I learned through trial and error. Um, you know, I was, I was not that kind of pitcher when I came to the big leagues, I was a fastball curveball guy. 
Um, didn't throw enough strikes when I got to the big leagues. Uh, knew that I had to start throwing more strikes. Um, went through a lot of the growing pains that a lot of guys do. I had a bad year my my first year in the big leagues. I lost 17 games. Came back the next year, had a good year. And then my third year was average. So I was struggling to find that consistency that so many guys struggle to find. And it wasn't until I developed my changeup um, in 91 that I took off. And, and that became the difference maker for me. And it was it really was the thing that that allowed me to stay in games when I didn't have my best stuff. You know, up, up to that point in time, if I had my A game, then I had my A game. And I'm not saying I was going to win, but I was going to pitch a good game. I was going to have a chance to win. Uh, B game, C game, I had no chance. Um, and once I learned that change up and learned how to lean on it, um, that gave me the ability to win games when I had my B stuff or even my C stuff. It, it, it helped me to stay in there. Um, so that was, that was a big part of it. And then, you know, just learning how to throw more strikes and then learning how to expand the strike zone. Um, you know, you know, when, when, when you came into the league, we played together. It was it was an east and west strike zone, uh, at least in the National League. Uh, belt high was a ball. Uh, you had some leeway off the corners. Um, and, you know, I think I – my mentality – you know, I, I, I kind of developed my style of pitching two, through two things. Number one, when Leo came in, um, it was – he really put an emphasis on commanding your fastball and, in particular, the down-and-away fastball. You know, I used to sit on the bench and talk to hitters all the time, pick their brain. I remember sitting on the bench one day with, with Jeff Blauser, and we were talking about pitching and hitting. And, and you know, I asked him, I said, you know, we're, we're, we're being preached to and talked to and practicing, you know, the down and away strike. I said, you know, as a hitter, what's that pitch, what's that pitch like to hit? And I, I never forgot what he said. He said, well, Glavis, the, the, the equivalent of – having perfect mechanics when you throw a pitch in order for a hitter to hit that pitch, you got to have perfect, perfect mechanics. And even if you do, you still may not hit it hard. Uh, and, and that stuck with me. And I thought, okay, well, if that's the case, I'm going to learn how to do that because I'm going to learn, I'm going to try and make you get three hits to score a run off me. Not one, not one that's going to end up in the seats or one that's going to end up in a gap. Now, obviously it's not to say that you never made those mistakes, but that was kind of my mentality. And, and I, I got to the point where I got good enough at it that then you learn how to expand the strike zone, you know, and, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I didn't get pitches off the outside corner. Of course I did. Um, you know, I didn't get as many on the inner part portion of the plate cause I didn't go in there as much, but I was okay with that. But I think it was the kind of thing that for me anyway, was all right, if I'm going to learn how to throw this pitch and now I want to learn how to expand off the plate to get somebody to swing at a ball that looks like a strike, but it's not in the zone um, you know, that kind of thing, then I need to start to practice that, learn how to do that. And, and, and I think the, the side effect of that was, you know, when you're, when you're working on one side of the plate like that all the time, like I did, and your catcher setting up at a, as a strike and you're hitting the mitt, you're hitting the mitt, you're hitting the mitt. Now all of a sudden he sets up two, three, four inches off the plate and you hit the mitt. Well, that's what the umpire sees. You know, and, and you make it if you do it often enough, my mentality was if I'm doing it often enough, I'm going to make it hard for that umpire not to call a strike, you know, because if he's seeing me hitting the mid all the time, then, you know, if I'm two inches off the plate, it's going to make it hard for him to call not call that pitch. So that was kind of what I tried to do. And then again, my mentality was always, you know, I'm I'm 
I'm going to try and make you beat me with my pitch or a pitch that I'm trying to execute, not, hey, I can't afford to walk you, so here's a, a pitch right down the middle. You know, like you said, I'd, I'd rather walk you than give up a, a bases loaded double. So, you know, that was, you know, that was just my mentality. I just never gave in because I never felt like I had the stuff to give in, you know, and, and, and then secondarily, I guess I was just stubborn enough that, you know, whatever pitch I was trying to make, I thought I could make it. And if I didn't, then okay, I'll try to make it on my next one. And, and I think it served me, uh, it served me well more times than not. I think you bring up a great point. And, uh, you know, I laugh at, at the people th that have never been in the box telling me that, oh, Maddox and Glavin would get pitches off the plate. And I think about it rationally. I think, do you think umpires who have a lot of pride in what they do, because there was a lot of buzz of, of that in that in that time where, yeah, Maddox and Glavin, oh, they give them they give them off the plate. And, and I thought to myself, rationally, do you think an umpire went into a game thinking, whom hmm, it's Tommy, who's won two Cy Young Awards, Doggy, I don't know how many he's won. Uh, we're going to give him off the plate today. If anything, the pride factor would take over and say, hey, I'm going to really bear down and make sure I call a fair strike zone. I think what people don't put into the equation is because of the, first of all, because you, you were so uh, efficient at hitting your spots, uh, it makes it a little bit easier for an umpire. He knows what it's going to be in this particular zone. But as a hitter, I would – the illusion of your pitch, your changeup especially, Maddox's two-seamer that would come back seem like out of his hand I'd give up on it, and the next thing you know, it in front of my eyes it went zip, and it was a strike. Now, sometimes I'd go check the tape, and it was just off the plate. But my eyes – it was almost the illusion that it was a strike, and that's why the umpire called it. So mm – -hmm. I, I don't like to defend pitchers because I don't like you, but <laughs> I'm t I, I've got to be honest. There were certain guys in the league that were just different. They gave the illusion of a strike, even though it might've been a ball, ball and a half off the plate. And uh, so I don't think it was a real fair compare. I, I, I laugh at people still to this day. Oh, well they gave them off the plate. Oh yeah. That's what the umpire want to do going into the game going, I want to give these guys off the plate. So I just feed that narrative. Uh, but, but I think it was more attributed to the efficiency of your pitches versus an umpire just in your, you know, in, in on the, in on the plot with, with Tom Glavin. Well, you know, I think again, it, it was, it was a little bit more a part of the gamesmanship back then. Right. I think in today's game with quest tech and, um, umpires being graded on that system and the whole nine yards, there's a little bit less of that gamesmanship, I think, that goes on in the game, right? And and again, to my point, if, if I'm going to have my catcher set up on the outside corner for a strike and I'm constantly hitting that spot, well, when there's one that's there and it's maybe a ball off the plate, well, of course your umpire's going to lean towards a strike because he's seen so many strikes out there to begin with, right? It's not like I'm trying to throw one on the outside corner and I throw it on the inside corner. That that pitch isn't going to get called. But if you're constantly in your zone and, and around where you're trying to be, then, you know, you're going to get the benefit of some calls uh, if, if you're around there enough, right? And and I think it went both ways. I, mean, I remember in my that my first year in the big leagues, or maybe it was my second year, my first three starts of the year were against like reigning Cy Young Award winners. I had Hershiser, I had Fernando Valenzuela, and I had I had Doc Good. And and I remember after like the third time facing one of those guys, I was getting frustrated 
with my strike zone and seeing what they were calling for those guys. And I remember going back to the bench, you know, kind of being frustrated a little bit. And I remember Rick Mailer, a uh, teammate at the time, sitting there next to me on the bench. And he said, listen, you got to earn that. You got to earn that strike zone. And there's truth in that, right? You're not going to, you can't expect to go out there as a, as a young pitcher, so to speak, and have the same strike zone as a veteran, right? And, and you can't go out there as a guy who throws the ball kind of all over the place and then have a borderline pitch and get expect to get that pitch called. So I think when you when you establish yourself as being around the strike zone all the time, then yeah, you're going to get the benefit of some calls here and there. Just like good hitters got the benefit of of the strike zone, right? I mean, if a Tony Gwynn is standing in the batter's box and there's a borderline pitch that he doesn't swing at, nine times out of the ten, the umpire is going to go, "Well, if he didn't swing, it must have been a ball." You know, because he had that kind of respect and he had that kind of command of the strike zone. So, you know, it, it went both ways. You knew there were certain hitters that when they got in the batter's box that you weren't going to get the benefit of some of those borderline calls. And OK, fine, you dealt with it. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's sometimes, you know, it's almost like people are suggesting that, you know, well, I had a different strike zone or Greg had a different strike zone. No, it wasn't a different strike zone. It's just that we were more consistent within what we were doing that allowed us to expand our strike zone more so, like I said, than, and like you said, than a guy who's, you know, kind of hitting his spots every once in a while and then throws one borderline he expects to get it. Well, if you're not around your, your spots all the time, you're not going to get as the benefit of, of as many of those calls. No, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, people forget when they're watching the game, the human element and the umpire. I, I remember as a young player, uh, 1992, when I came up, I mean, that strike zone was five feet wide, you know, and, and you earn your stripes a little bit later in my career. It was a different ball game. But all I asked from umpires, I, I always thought, well, these guys are human beings. It's a tough job calling a big league game. And all I ask is establish your strike zone early and stick with it. If you're going to be given that that pitch off the plate or a little doubt, you better not give it on the inside corner. As mm -hmm. long as you – I found that the best umpires weren't a human computer like the square we have today that you watch every day. I don't know about you. drives me nuts. I throw stuff on TV. Uh, because, <laughs> it's in a, it, first of all, it's inaccurate. It's not what the umpires train on. Um, but as long as they establish their zone – I knew what it was, you know, it, my first at bat, I may, Hey, what are we doing? Is that, is that as far as we're going? Yeah, Booney, that's it. Okay. The good ones would stick with that. So I know, uh, late in the game, tight situation. I know that, Hey, I gotta be a little, I gotta expand my zone a little bit on that pitch. Cause that's a strike. That was fair to me. That's all I need to know as a hitter. I'm sure for you as a pitcher, same thing. I watched the strike zone today and that square. Now everybody at home is an expert. Oh, how can you call that a strike? Well, there's so many variables with the, with the velocity, with the, uh, the movement of the pitch. And when we see where that little track master and you see it on a daily basis, sometimes that drives you crazy because it, it really is tough. And, and a lot of times just because the ball shows up and it's a centimeter outside of that little box, me and you know, as hitter and pitcher, that's not the true tale. As a broadcaster watching this, what goes through your mind when you see it consistently and you hear people bitching both sides? Well, I mean, I think for me, I, I kind of go back to my pitcher's mentality, right? And 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 I share, you know, a lot of your a lot of your same sentiments when it comes to that, right? And 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 I and I think a hitter would too. Like if I'm watching a catcher set up on the outside corner, or the, or a corner in general. 
and that pitcher throws a pitch that's maybe a ball off, I'd much rather, and I would think a hitter would too, I'd much rather see that pitch called a strike than when he's trying to throw it to a corner and he throws it belt, you know, a little bit above belt high on the other side of the on the other side of the strike zone. Like, okay, technically that pitch is in the box, but that's nowhere close to what he was trying to do, right? So why why are you <laughs> rewarding him for a pitch that he had no intentions of making? And that's where I think it drives me crazy is that if a guy's trying to make a pitch, and you know that ball skirts that line on the strike zone and it gets called a ball, I'm like, man, that was a really well executed pitch. You know, I would, I as a pitcher, I would want that pitch versus again the fastball that I'm trying to throw down and away, and I throw on the, you know, just above belt high in the inside corner. Yeah, I know that's a strike, but I wasn't trying to do that. Or the hanging breaking ball, right? That the hanging breaking ball that in our day is coming out of your hand, and you're like, oh god. And in today's game, it's a called strike. You know, it, it's so that's where it drives me a little bit crazy. But I agree with you. I mean, umpires are they're human beings, right? And and again. If a, if a guy's around the strike zone, then then you know you'll see more of those borderline pitches called. Um, but it's you know it, it's it's been hard for me, based on the way I pitched, based on the way our game was when we played. You know, it's just so hard for me to still buy into watching guys pitching on the upper portion of the strike zone. You know, uh, especially when you have guys that have very little fastball command. And they're trying to pitch with their fastball above the belt. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, here's a guy. Yeah, I know he throws 95, but everybody does. Right. And he doesn't have much command. And we're trying to have him pitch to a portion of the strike zone where there's little to no margin for error. There's just no room. You know, you you get that ball, you know, maybe two balls above the belt. You get a swing and a miss. You get that ball, a ball lower, that ball is going 450 feet, you know, and it's you know, it just seems like a much harder way to pitch than, again, what I tried to do, which was, you know, pitch on the outside corner. And if I missed off the plate, all right, I'm either going to get it's either going to be a ball or if somebody wants to go ahead and chase that pitch. They're not going to hit it very hard. So either way, I'm OK versus, man, I'm flirting with danger every time I throw that fastball middle, middle to middle up uh, and, and really trying to bank on my stuff to get help me get away with it. If I make a mistake, it's just it's. That's probably the hard part for me to watch uh, in today's game because, A, I can't relate to it with stuff, um, but, B, I just can't relate to it in terms of an execution standpoint. Like, I just see so many <laughs> so many hazards, so to speak, trying to pitch above the belt. It cracks me up, too. In our day, we didn't have that, that, that feed in the dugout. You know, as hitters, mm-hmm. we had to go down into the video room and check out. Now they've got it in the dugout. And I see people arguing, you know, that it'll it'll be just off the box. And and I'll yell at Aaron, my brother, once in a while. I said, quit, quit bitching and moaning about all the balls and strikes just right. because you got that monitor now. You know, it's different. Uh, it's, it's just a different world than 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 when we were playing. Twenty four hundred sports is an Odyssey company. 